But this morning, in continuing the series of studies we've been doing, I'd like to look not at the birth of Christ, but the death of Christ. And as we've been doing on and off for the past several months, we try to look at the death of Christ from different angles. And as I've said before, uh, coming to the cross, coming to the place of Christ's crucifixion of his sacrifice, it's like coming to a beautiful diamond, an exquisitely cut one, in which if we turn it from different angles, we see new beauties. And it's unfortunate, it, too often we think of that death in a very singly, singular focused manner. We're really, we're going to be studying this topic for eternity. This week I came across an interesting quotation from a little book called Acts of the Apostles, a wonderful book on the life of the apostles. If anyone's interested in it, let me know. But notice what it says. It says that Christ's death proves what? God's great love for man. And that's one of the things that we noticed actually in the very first study of this series is that the cross is a revelation of God. And then it goes on to say to remove the cross from the Christian would be like what? Blotting the sun from the sky. The cross brings us near to God, reconciling us to him. So it's what took place there that is of supreme importance for each one of us. It's what really, I've said it many times, the world, instead of being divided uh, racially, although there are racial tensions, quite obviously, but rather than be divided racially or by country, what really divides the world is how we respond to the death of Jesus Christ. That is the great marker. Are we responding to the love that's displayed there, or are we resisting that love? And just by way of, of review, we noticed several different points as we looked at the cross back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the place of God's revelation of his power and his wisdom. We also noticed that we can turn that diamond another way and see that the cross is the place where the covenant was made for us. Why in the communion service in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is given for you, the place where we're formed into a group of, of believers. The death of Jesus is also the means of reconciliation. Tremendous passage that God is not counting our trespasses against us. Amen. Thank you. That God is not counting our trespasses against us. We need to communicate that view of God to other people. That God is not keeping an arbitrary list waiting to get us, but God is doing everything he can to bring us back to himself, reconciling us to himself. And a few weeks ago, we looked at, again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Jesus is our substitute. He takes our place, another aspect of that. Um, and really, all of these, as so we come to study about the, the death of Jesus and what it means, one important term that is often thrown around is the atonement. And if we come to the place of Christ's death, we want to learn more about the atonement, we need humble hearts, where we can just, in, in humility and in openness, 
come and sit there and stare. And this morning, I want to study a passage, uh, what we read in our scripture reading in chapter, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. And as I was reading throughout this week, I came across an interesting thing that Martin Luther, in trying to understand this passage, went away and kind of locked himself in a room, metaphorically speaking, for, for about a month trying to figure out what this passage meant. And when he came out, he wasn't any clearer than when he went in. So um, we're going to try to take this passage apart piece by piece and if, see if the Holy Spirit can give us a little bit more clarity this morning. But again, the word atonement simply means at one meant or being at one with God. And that's what really the, the death of Jesus is all about, is how to take people that are separated from God and bring them back into harmony with God. That's you and that's me. And that's the people that we meet. That's people in the grocery store. That's everybody is an individual that needs to find this place where they can be quiet before God and they can know that God is speaking to them, can hear his voice. So let's turn. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, where we look at another aspect of the cross, and that is the forsakenness of the cross. What happens here when Jesus is forsaken by God. And as you're turning there to Matthew chapter 27, something I want to to stress, which we studied a few weeks ago, um, again, it's God in Christ that's accomplishing this. So as we come to this passage, it's important for us to keep in mind that the Father and the Son are working together. That's very important. There are some individuals that would like to downplay certain aspects of the atonement, and they often try to make it seem like Christians are saying, you know, that Jesus is the good guy trying to placate or appease the Father, and the Father is the the bad one, full of wrath and anger. That's a caricature of biblical truth. The biblical truth is that the Father and the Son together are in the process of reconciling humanity. It was God in Christ reconciling the world. And so the question for us this morning is really partially is going to be, how do we keep that unity together when Jesus appears forsaken? So let's look at our passage. Uh, Let's look at the context a little bit. Matthew 27, and we'll again start in verse 41 we see clearly that there is mocking taking place at the cross. Just before this, in verse 39 and 40, the the two robbers are throwing abuse, verbal abuse at Jesus. They they mock him by making a claim that he can rebuild, destroy and rebuild the temple. Verse 41, the chief priests also and the scribes and elders, in addition, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, He cannot save himself. They were mocking, but there's a lot of truth in that phrase. It is because he would not save himself that he can save others. He is the king of Israel, or if he is the king of Israel, depending on your translation, let him come down now from the cross and what? Will believe. 
But if we can see a miracle, if you can do something, if you can break yourself out of the suffering you're in, then we will believe. But to remain on the cross, that staggers belief. And really, it should stagger belief for us as well to realize that Jesus chose to remain on the cross. Let's continue a little further. Um, Verse 43 It says, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. That is, if God delights in Christ. For he said, I am the son of God. And again, the robbers who had been crucified, again, they're also throwing these insulting words. So again, the the whole setting here is focused and it'll come important to us as we go through the entire study this morning is this context of, do you really trust God? I mean, if you're really, if God really delights in you, then you're not going to be in that situation. If, if this is really, if you're really the one that was following God, then why would all this happen? Now, this week in prayer meeting, Richard was uh, sharing, prayer meeting has been a real blessing, studying about the disciples' experience in relation to ours at the end of time. And we would talk just briefly about Sometimes we think, you know, if I'm really following God, why do bad things happen? Why do things go wrong at times? Richard's answer was, Richard's answer was, well, God sometimes let them happen just to test us. You know, lets us enter into temptations just to test us. Uh, does that sound appealing to you? It's true, whether it sounds appealing or not. Uh, it's a true statement. But just because we're following God doesn't mean that the path is going to be full of sunshine at every step of the way. And so here's this backdrop. Well, if you really trust God, God's not going to let you be crucified. Save yourself. Then we'll believe. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Not darkness by an eclipse, but a supernatural darkness. It was Passover, full moon. It's not going to be an eclipse, and certainly eclipses don't last three hours. This is a supernatural darkness. It's almost as if nature, in sympathy with the creator, is saying, we can't watch. And in that darkness, Jesus is wrestling. Something's happening. Jesus is feeling something. Jesus is becoming, as it said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, sin for the human race. So let's look at this next phrase, starting in verse 46. And, and as we turn to verse 46, I'm going to break it apart piece by piece so we can think on some key portions of what Jesus says. It's important for us to understand that at key points in the life of Christ, God spoke from heaven. Can you think of any? Baptism. And what what did God say at the baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say about that about you? He does. As you're in Christ, he says the same thing about you. Beautiful words. But God spoke another time as well. When else did God speak? Mount Transfiguration said pretty much the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. This is my beloved son. There was a third time God spoke as well. 
Anyone else know where that is? Where? Outside the court, before shortly in John chapter 12, shortly before the crucifixion, you know, I have glorified you and I will glorify you again. So three times in the life of Jesus, at high points, God spoke from heaven. Here, God is silent. The time Jesus needed a voice from heaven the most, there is silence. What's taking place? Well, notice the first part of the phrase, I put it up on the screen for us. My God, my God. Now, unfortunately, due to the way people use this expression, oftentimes as a, you know, just a thoughtless, you know, verbal ejaculation, some expression, um, the emphasis is often placed on the second word, on God. And it's often used, you know, in an inappropriate way. But in the original language, the emphasis is on the first part. It's on my, my God, the God that I followed my entire life, my God, the God that I've been trusting on from the days of my youth, my God, the God that saved me when I was young and brought me, nurtured me all the way through life, my God. When you and I are in times of darkness, can we say the same thing? Do we have a unshakable assurance that God is our God. That's what Jesus is saying, and obviously he's quoting here from Psalm 22 in verse 1, and maybe another time we'll study that psalm, but the entire psalm tracks what happens here at the cross. But here's an emphasis. There's this strong relationship between the Father and the Son. Incidentally, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus refers to the Father as God. Every other place, it's Father. But Jesus knows the Father is his God, and he is just depending on him despite the outward circumstances. Again, verse 46, ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God. You are mine no matter what is happening. But something tremendous is happening. One uh, book that I was reading this week said that when we come to this passage, it should overwhelm us with awe. And it's really true. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And we can think about that. My God, why have you forsaken me? Let's, let's go here. Let's look at this why for a moment. What's happening here at the cross? There's an exchange taking place. Keep your um, finger here in Matthew 27 and turn back with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, is a parable about what will take place toward the end of time. Will there be a separation between sheep and the goats, between those who followed God, pardon me, and those who have not? And this separation is described in verse 41. Then he will say, this is the king, the son of man, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, and then he describes them. How are they described? 
cursed into eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me or be separated from me, you cursed. When they were putting Jesus to death on the cross, what kind of crown did they give him? Crown of thorns. What are thorns a symbol of? Where did thorns come from originally? A curse. Go back to the book of Genesis. The thorns were a sign of the curse. And as Jesus is on the cross and as he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the curse that the wicked will feel, those that have rejected will feel at the end of time. Aren't you grateful that none of them need to feel that? Notice what it really says here is this fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. God's business is to save everybody. How sad if someone would choose something else. Let's turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. We've kind of referred to this verse different times in our studies together, but in Galatians chapter 3 is a verse that gives us insight into some of the thinking of the religious leaders, the Jews, was they were around the cross and they are mocking him. You know, save yourself. You're, if you're really the Messiah, you wouldn't be on the cross. And this verse gives us an insight into what they were thinking. Galatians chapter 3 in verse, um, we're going to start in verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to do them. Now, what is, was Paul saying there? If we want to be law keepers, if we want to be obedient, and we end up being lawbreakers, transgressing the law, transgressing the law brings something. What does it bring? It brings a curse. That's a result of transgressing the law, much like as in the physical realm, if I choose to eat a poor way uh, or I choose not to exercise, what's that going to do to me? It's going to impact my health. In a spiritual sense, in God's law, if I break it, the result of breaking that law is a curse. Verse 13 of the same passage, Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us, he's purchased us, he's delivered us, he's freed us from the curse of the law. That is good news. Past tense. Christ has redeemed us, he's freed us, he's delivered us from the curse of the law. How? The text goes on and tells us how having been made or having become a curse for us. And then Paul quotes the book of Deuteronomy, just as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul there is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, verses 21 and 22, where in the Old Testament it says, if someone does something worthy of death and you put them to death and then you hang their body on a tree, that person is under a curse. That's what was taking place as Jesus was on the cross. And those individuals, the Jewish leaders, as they're standing around the cross, it's very clear in their minds that the only people that went up on crosses were those that were underneath the curse of God. My God, why 
have you made me a curse? What's taking place? What's the why here? What's the reason for the why? Jesus is redeeming you and me from the curse of the law. He's making an exchange, taking our place. Now, when we think about the law here, it's important for us not to get confused. Um, It's not like the law is some, uh, how do I want to say this? Let me give you an example. Maybe this would be better. In the Old Testament, there's a story of the book of Darius. Darius was a king, and um, it's in the book of Daniel. And Darius was tricked into making a law. And the law said, if anybody prays to anyone except Darius, they have to get thrown into a pit. And this was all a trick to trap somebody. Who did they want to trap? They wanted to trap Daniel. And when Darius found this out, what should he have done? Well, he should have simply changed the law. But Darius says, well, I can't just change the law because the laws of the Medes and Persians, once once it's made, the king cannot change that. We call that a constitutional monarchy. The queen of England cannot change the law. She's bound by the law. That is not what's happening here with the death of Jesus. The law is not some external to God, something that that some external that God is bound to. But what is the law? The law is a reflection of who God is. That's right. God is not in some legal, technical muddle. Let's see, I want to forgive you, but I can't because the law over here says I can't forgive you. That's That's a caricature of a truth, which is the law reveals who God is and how the universe operates. It's a law of love. It's a law of sacrifice. It's a law of life. And if you break it, it brings a curse. Why have you forsaken me? What's the reason to the why? Because Jesus is taking the experience that naturally would come to each one of us. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. Remember, God's not a prisoner to his law. He's the creator of his law. Matthew chapter 27, again, the next phrase here, and I'm skipping a part on purpose. Why have you forsaken me? So what's, how is Jesus describing his experience? It's a word he's using. Forsaken. Being abandoned. Being given up, we could say. It's important for us to realize that it was not the physical torture that put Jesus Christ to death. In fact, uh, one writer says that, that the spiritual pain was so intense that the physical pain was hardly felt. I want you to think about that with me for a minute. The physical pain was hardly felt. Does that mean the physical pain was like, meh, no big deal? Not in the least. The physical pain was, and this is where the word comes from, excruciating, excruciating from the cross. It's a tremendous pain. It was unbelievable pain. And yet the physical pain was hardly felt because of the spiritual anguish that Jesus was going through. Why is he going through such spiritual anguish? Because he and his father have been together for eternity. From eternity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in a communal, ongoing, ever-giving love, giving and receiving from eternity. And all of a sudden, in a point in time, that is being ripped apart. And the Son is feeling 
forsaken from the Father. And remember, there's darkness all around the cross, and we know that it's God in Christ reconciling the world. So how do we put all this together? It's important for us to realize what's taking place here at the cross, that the Father is right there around the cross. His arms are around it, but his arms are hidden in the darkness. And all that Jesus can feel is separation from his Father. All Jesus can feel is closed doors to heaven. And he really, in the very depth of his being, in the the intensity of who he is, felt like he was going to be lost for eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me, the one that lived in triple, in perfect harmony with the law of God. Me, the one that loved you forever. Me, the one that you're well chosen, your, your beloved son, the one you love. Why have you forsaken me? Because it's really the only way that God can embrace each one of us. It's really the only way that God can show us what he's really like and bring about the change in our hearts and minds so that we stop thinking of God as some kind of ogre waiting to get us, and we realize that God's doing everything he can to bring us into harmony with him. Why do we resist? Why do we fight? I want to think about this just briefly. Um, Let me try to illustrate this with an example. I have a student, one of my classes, who's really having a hard time. And, um, in fact, he kind of left the class for a week or so, you know. And anyway, he's, got a, he's having a hard time. We, had, we went together, we spoke together the other day, and he's got papers due and all sorts of things. And I have this leaning to be really generous. And just, I know his situation. I know the difficulty he's going through. So I just kind of want to wink at his grades or maybe let him slide and not returning his paper. Now there's some teachers in this audience here that is like, don't you do that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm a pastor this morning. I'm not a teacher, so I can... So you know, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to like let him slide. Why? Because I know his situation. Anybody with me on that? Okay. Here's Jesus, spotless, pure, obedient. God knows everything about him. God says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to wink at anything. You are going to experience the full separation that sin brings. Why? Because sin is such an evil, we really need to understand it. And at the cross... The Father and the Son experience something that they have never experienced from eternity, and that is separation. Because God doesn't want to be separated from you. They're willing to be, let the Godhead be torn apart so that you could be together with them forever. Why have you forsaken me? Why? And Jesus isn't being rhetorical. Why? All Jesus can see is darkness. Um, Quotation from an article 
called the Signs of the Times, says even doubts assailed the dying Son of God. He, Jesus, could not see through the portals of the tomb. It wasn't like he just knew in a couple of days, hey, just hang in there, I'll be back with you in a moment. No, bright hope did not present to him his coming forth from the tomb a conqueror and his father's acceptance of his sacrifice. The sin of the world with all its terribleness was felt to the uttermost by the Son of God. All Jesus could feel was lost. Why? So that you can come into his presence. You can be quiet. You can know that God's there. You can know that God's love you, no matter how dark anything is in your life. God's never going to forsake you because he forsook his son. Christ was forsaken that you and I might be forgiven. It's true, we at the end may turn away from him, but God is continually pulling on us, drawing us. Jesus felt, as C.S. Lewis said, it was like a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Lewis is writing during a time of grief when he went, after his wife died, this is what it felt like for him. This is something what Jesus felt like on the cross as well. It's that everything's closed down. God, how can I find you? Why have you forsaken me? Well, there's a plan. There's a reason. And Jesus felt that separation to the utmost of his being so that you don't have to and that I don't have to and that nobody has to. And God's arms are wide open to embrace each one of us, no matter what our past has been, no matter what our experience has been, just longing to draw us to himself. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. I'm to bring this to a close. This phrase that I skipped here, the italics up on the screen, why have you forsaken me? At this whole time, we've been largely thinking about about the experience of Christ on the cross and what it was like for him to feel the darkness and the separation. And it is incomprehensible uh, for us to understand. It's incomprehensible. We can't understand it. But there's something as incomprehensible, and that is what was the Father feeling at this time? Remember, it's God in Christ. So if there's parents here, could you imagine your son crying out, Where are you, Dad? Where are you, Mom? Where are you? Why are you leaving me? And being right there and not being able to give comfort. Could you imagine what that would be like? Your child is crying out for great help, suffering the worst suffering that you could ever imagine, and you know in a moment you can change it, but you don't. The father is suffering with the son. The father is in the darkness right by the cross, Right by the cross, here I am, Jesus, just wanting to whisper it. No, not wanting to whisper it, wanting to shout it. But he doesn't because there's a plan. And the plan involves you and the plan involves me. And the plan involves the two of them working out redemption for the human race. And part of that plan of redemption involves Jesus becoming a curse for us. And the Father withdrawing his presence from the Son. And the son, feeling God's wrath against sin, however we understand that, against him. And yet the father is right there, right there. 
in the darkness, but right by the cross. And so if we think about the death of Jesus, you know, it's not. There's a totally misshapen illustration where the father is there. Oh, I love you, Jesus. And then he slams Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. And then he slams. That's a terrible caricature. The father and the son are suffering together for us. So we look at the cross. So we look at the suffering of Jesus. In every pang of anguish endured, we behold the depth of paternal love. The Father himself travailed in the greatness of his almighty love in the behalf of a world perishing in sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Why have you forsaken me? Because it was the only way. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I might be forgiven. Jesus was abandoned that you and I might be adopted. Jesus was cursed that you and I might be blessed. And when the time comes in your life and you begin to question, am I really trusting God? Can I find him in this darkness? Remember, he's right there, just as he was at the cross. So my appeal to each one of us this morning is to accept the incredible love that God has displayed toward us and to reflect it to other people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Words just aren't enough, Lord. What you're really after is our hearts and lives. And I pray that the drawing, compelling influence of your spirit would lead us, Lord, day by day, moment by moment, to a deeper, more full, more consistent surrender to you. Just pray, Lord, that uh, the love displayed at Calvary would work its way into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.